0: Hello, I'm Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome to another episode of the Myland Institute podcast. I'm delighted this morning to welcome Mark Pack, who as well as being the President of the Liberal Democrats, is one of the most astute observers of politics I know, and one who has a podcast of his very own, and who also writes great books about politics. His latest, which is out this month, is called Polling Unpacked, The History, Uses and Abuses of Political Opinion polls, And it's that book that we're going to talk about today. So welcome to the Myland Institute podcast, Mark.
1: Lovely to join you, Tim, and thank you for those very kind words.
0: Well, it's a great book. um, And I thought I'd start by asking you, I suppose, a pretty obvious question, which is why did you come to write it? Clearly, you're a bit of a polling obsessive. I should say that despite (laughs) presenting as a fairly normal adult. Mark's actually been uh, recording the results of Opinion polls since he was a teenager in Camden Library. Um, But what was it about polling that you you wanted to share with the wider world? I, I
1: remember many years ago reading an excellent book about political polls by Nick Moon. Really, really good book. And as I say in my own book, I think had Nick done an updated version of his, I would have probably not written my book. But what it what it brought home to me, the fact that Nick's book was so dated now, is how much time even someone like me spent scrabbling around different academic articles, different blog posts from people like Anthony Wells and so on, just to check information and figure out what did the research say on this sort of wording or this sort of approach to polling? And I thought, well, if even I find all of this information all a bit disparate and unjoined up, maybe maybe other people as well would enjoy having it brought together in a book. And when I started digging into it as well, I realized there's a conventional history of political opinion polling, which is rather generous to figures like George Gallup, one of the huge pioneering pollsters of the 20th century. And when you scratch under the surface, you realise there's quite a lot more to the story than most than those normal histories. If you go and read Wikipedia or you get a book about politics that has a chapter in about polling, there's quite a lot more to the history than you'll find in those places.
0: Yes, and certainly some incredibly colourful figures as well. And, you know, there are several mentioned in, in the book. Uh, who had somewhat roller coaster careers some of whom died quite young and some of whom died in some ways in obscurity and one of the things that the book does I guess and perhaps this speaks to what you were saying just now is to rescue those people um, from obscurity and to tell us a little bit more about their contribution.
1: Yeah and particularly I think one of the things I was surprised to learn on researching the book was how sophisticated in many ways the pre-modern polling was So the basic history of political opinion polling is that in the 1936 US presidential election, the Literary Digest magazine got all of its readers to write in to say who they were gonna vote for. They predicted a comfortable win for the Republican. George Gallup, however, rocked up with his modern scientific polling with sampling and weighting. Instead, he predicted a really comfortable win for incumbent uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And indeed it was a landslide win for Roosevelt and therefore the modern scientific approach was clearly better. And there's quite a few things missing from that story one is the other modern scientific pollsters there were two other pollsters who also got the election right in a way the literary digest got wrong but also i think probably to everyone listening to this podcast they'll be thinking that sounds a really daft thing for the literary digest to have done to just ask its readers to write in and therefore think you could extrapolate from that to know the result of an election but in fact the Literary Digest approach was fairly sophisticated and had got several previous elections right. And there were many other similar pre-modern polling enterprises that you know, don't stand up to modern cephalogical scrutiny by any means. But when you look at what people did and how they, for example, would send researchers out into particular parts of town to try to get a good mix of respondents and so on, you realize there were a lot of people who, even if they didn't yet have the theoretical framework, about sampling and waiting were groping towards doing the right thing. And therefore there's a whole interesting prehistory of polling. Mm. But also there's this way in which the George Gallup story is rather exaggerated in its kindness to him. Because he was only he was one of three people really who got it right in 36 rather than the one person. And also he didn't get it nearly as right as his own and the Gallup company's <laughs> own retelling of the story subsequently. There's one particular example which I think is quite funny. It's part of the the George Gallup sort of hagiography normally, uh, when you get into a little bit more detail beyond the headlines, is that not only did he get the election right and the Literary Digest got it wrong, but supposedly he predicted how wrong the Literary Digest poll was going to be. You know, he was that smart, he was that brilliant, that much more modern with his approach. However, if you look at when he made his prediction and how he made his prediction, he made his prediction based on field work that he did for his poll, that was carried out at a completely different time from when the Literary Digest did the field work for its, I was going to say poll, but I should maybe call it more a survey. Um, and so to be able to predict how wrong a poll is going to be done at a different time from your own, that's, there's a bit of skill there in terms of understanding what might be wrong with it, definitely. George Gallup was a smart chap, but there's a large degree of luck as well, because if the Underlying politics of the situation had changed. If the president had become notably more or less popular between those two times, then Gallup's predictions would have been mm. for naught, Then have been undone by that change in reality. So, lots of interesting additional nuances, I think, to mm. stories even that people are already familiar
0: with. Yeah, two things to say about that. One is that, of course, newspapers in particular are still quite keen on conducting readers' polls. <laughs> think of the yes, Express, actually. the Mail, the Sun. Um, you know, are, are still keen on doing that kind of thing. And, of course, we have Twitter polls, so-called, as uh, you talk about in your book. Second thing is, I mean, when do you think that we can truly say that polling became uh, a science rather than an art? Although, of course, as you make clear in your book, there's still quite a lot of art or artifice yeah. or artistry in, in actually putting together uh, polls. Yeah, I
1: I mean, I'm not sure how scientific, in a way, polling has ever become because as you say there's a lot of scope for skill and judgment and extrapolation and there are still two fundamentally different schools of of political polling there is the school that tries to build really clever sophisticated models and often you know the people doing that modeling try to be relatively sparse with the number of variables they put in the models and so on but essentially trying to build clever models based on past experience and then there's the alternative approach which is to say that those models can too often be too clever for their own good and end up with results that are less accurate and so there's a minimalist uh, approach in a way that slightly mirrors what we've seen with the food industry over the years is back when you or I were children, Tim, the food industry was all about how wonderful additives and processing was, how it made food better. Now, of course, we're in a very different world. And in a way, political poll- polling has both of those schools of thought, both of those approaches very much alive. But if, you're, if, if you want to take a point at which you can say, polling began to fairly reliably predict an election result. And therefore, if the poll is different from what you should expect, you should bet your money on the poll rather than your expectations in that sense probably uh, in the us 1940 onwards is about the point once you've got the 36 election and then the 40 election there's a couple of elections there where the where polls in the modern sense sort of make their mark the us pollsters do then have uh, at least one very notable debacle subsequent to that but it's about the middle of the last century mm. and i think in terms of people who are interested in say other aspects of politics or history if you're looking at say i don't know how what life was really like in the blitz in the second world war and therefore you look at some of the rudimentary opinion polling that was done at the time that polling is pretty good you know you mm. obviously need to leaven it with other sources of information qualitative and sort of non-polling sources of information but i think uh in the way that a surprising straw poll figure from the early 19th century about attitudes to slavery in the US, one would almost certainly dismiss as being a problem with how it was done. By the time you get into the 40s, the certainly you probably should give the surprising evidence a few more looks before dismissing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, you note know that actually polling in some ways has got easier for uh, mm-hmm. the people conducting it. But in some ways, it's got harder, and particularly with regard to um, getting representative mm. samples. Um, could you tell our listeners um, uh, why that might be the case, and, and give your opinion, perhaps, on what they've done to to try and um, you know, get out of that particular problem and to try and solve it?
1: Yeah, and the basic task and problem that any pollster faces is to get a representative group of people or as close to a properly representative group of people as they can to ask their questions of, because if you don't have a representative group, your answers won't be representative, so your results will be wrong. And in practice, it's never possible to get a perfectly representative sample, if only because, for example, some people are more willing to take part in polls than others. Uh, Some people are easier to get hold of than others and therefore you've got to try to be as representative as possible and then also understand in what ways is your sample not representative and then try and adjust that and because you can never get the perfect representative sample it's hard to know sometimes in what way is your sample really different how much adjustment does it need what sort of adjustment does it need Um, and that's been a fundamental challenge for political polling all the way through what has made it harder in some ways as time has progressed for pollsters is it's become increasingly difficult to get hold of people to get them to take part in a poll
0: which groups in particular do you think well
1: it partly i think there are social reasons about our people busy? Do they have time? Are they happy to share their views with strangers and the like? There's also a physical thing about how do you get hold of people. If you're going door to door, how often are people at home? If you look at a completely different aspect of door to door activity, but political parties and canvassing, the proportion of people you could expect to find in if you've knocked on every door in a ward or constituency once is a lot lower now than it was 50 years ago. So door to door is harder. Telephone polling has had its heyday and now faded, although it's still a useful tool because of the decline in landlines the rise of voicemail the rise of caller screening and so on and internet polling which is the modern solution to some of the problems now with with doorstep and telephone polling has a great advantage of speed it 's relatively cheap compared to those, but fundamentally, the people who take part in internet polls are the people who are willing to take part in internet mm. polls and If you build up a panel you 've also got that issue about if people have been willing to opt in to take part in more than one poll so there 's a whole set of biases that can creep in that way so there 's no one sort of straightforward, magical, perfect methodology. But one thing I realized in sort of thinking about this for the book is face-to-face doorstep polling is not necessarily that much better than some of the other methods you know, on paper, but crucially, it's so expensive that you only get face-to-face doorstep polling done now with polls and research projects that have big budgets. And therefore, as a rough rule of thumb, because a doorstep survey will be part of a much better funded piece of research than other polling. That is a a sort of de facto gold standard that you can, you you perhaps should give a bit of extra edge to -to face-to-face polling, but it is, yeah, they're pretty rare. I mean, John Curtis and his team do some face-to-face surveys, don't they? But other than that, it's, pretty hard to find any face-to-face political polling done in the uk these days for example
0: yeah does all this mean that young people are in particular quite difficult to reach i mean i can think of Mm. you know my students maybe even my own kids uh, you know they're, they're not necessarily likely to answer the phone to to people they don't know um I always remember sitting in a seminar and and being amazed that, uh, you know, my students said they wouldn't even answer the door sometimes mm. uh, unless someone had phoned ahead to tell them that <laughs> they were popping round.
1: Yeah. you. I mean, that reminds me of this fantastic uh, bonfire of a Twitter thread from about a year or so ago when somebody, an American tweeted about how they would, you know, never answer the door when the bell was rung even if it was a delivery driver or whatever. And that just spawned a whole controversy and debate about, you know, you know, well, what if it's somebody, you know, delivering a parcel for your neighbor and they're wanting to leave it with you? Are you not just being mean to your neighbor and, or what sort of world is it you live in where you will never answer the bell unless somebody already has told you they're calling and so on. So you're right. There's, there's a whole range of different attitudes towards talking to strangers or being willing to share views with strangers. And there does seem to be a bit of that, that younger people are particularly hard to get hold of. And that's where, One of the reasons I think internet polling has come to such prominence is that, you know, crudely put, internet access is still higher the younger somebody is. People Mm. are more familiar. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, of course, younger people are often busier than, say, retired people, and they may have less less time to share their views. So internet polling has not been a magic solution Mm. to all of these challenges. But Mm. certainly young people is one challenge, although, of course, the way politics in most countries most of the time works is young people also are less likely to vote. And particularly in more sort of mature Western democracies, Um, with ageing population as well as turnout skewing towards older people although it's a worry that it's right pollsters fret about it's not a problem that particularly Mm. undermines Mm. um, the validity of results
0: and and two things that pollsters have to be particularly concerned about and you go into quite a lot of detail in this in your book um, one relates to that actually Mm. which is um, turnout what do you Mm. do about that and the other of course is and this goes back to the problem of representation, weighting so that you actually manage to, uh, as it were, you know, replicate the Mm. the entire population uh, in in your sample. How do you think, generally speaking, polling companies have, have done in that respect? Would you give them a kind of B or an A?
1: Well, turnout is a real problem. And it's why, if you look at the accuracy of polling, that political polls are more accurate on average the higher turnout is in an election. Mm. Um, And the reason for that is if you ask somebody in advance of an election, are you going to vote in two weeks' time or whatever, people's answers are not that reliable. And so you get one school of pollsters, therefore, who try to build quite sophisticated models to essentially predict how many people are likely to vote and therefore adjust their results in line with that. The problem is those sorts of models, when they work, are really good, but end up building in often so many assumptions and calculations that they're quite vulnerable to something changing in the pattern of voters. So it ends up being, let's say, a surprisingly high turnout election, but you've modelled everything on an assumption that it's a lower turnout election. So you've mo- you, you've adjusted out of your figures, <laughs> The higher mm. turnout, so th- those sophisticated models are therefore somewhat vulnerable, and hence one of the most successful pollsters in the world. And um, cover your eyes if you're an, another pollster listening to this. Perhaps the best pollster in the world is Ann Seltzer from the US, who specialises in polling in Iowa, and she has got a really impressive track record of not just once being the outlier who had a different result and turned out she was right and everyone else was wrong, but she's pulled that off several times. Now, it's not that uncommon for somebody to be the outlier and write once, but normally they fade back into the pack. So Anne Seltzer is perhaps the world's best political pollster at the moment, and indeed over an extended period of time. Her approach to modelling turnout is to go really, really simple. She doesn't try to model. She doesn't try to be super clever. She's asked people, are they likely to vote or not? And pretty much takes their answers at face value. And that's why she had one of her huge triumphs, which was in the 2008 Iowa caucus. Uh, Her figures picked up a really implausibly large surge in turnout in the Democrat caucus, which was going to propel Barack Obama to victory in that caucus. Her figures were way out from other people's. The sort of turnout she was predicting was massively different from history so she felt she was a bit in the as she uses the phrase pot shot corral mm-hmm. uh, being really out on a limb with this much more simple a critic would even say rudimentary approach to to turn out and on the night of the caucus therefore she got in her car and drove to one of the local uh, venues where people were gathering for the caucus and it was of quite bad weather there was snow falling down and people were slipping and sliding on the snow and the ice on their way to the venue. And as each extra person passed her, and they just kept on coming, person after person after person, as that crowd built up, each extra body was an extra vindication of her approach, because it was record turnout. It was way above anything you would have expected looking at the past. And it propelled Barack Obama to victory. Her poll was right. Everyone else pretty much was wrong and yet that basic rudimentary approach of taking at face value if people say they're going to vote or not, lots of other occasions for lots of other pollsters doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So there is a real question there, and there's a fantastic academic study or PhD to be written at some point, really going into the details of the crosstabs and so on of Anselt's polls compared to other polls, as to what is it about. Now, is it her? Is it about Iowa? Is it about the US? Is it something about low turnout elections? You know, what is it? So there's a mystery at the heart of that. But the thing that we do know for sure is the higher the turnout, on average, the more accurate the polls because of all of these these problems. You, you make a means, good point.
0: I mean, just just to in, yeah. interrupt there, you, you make a good point there Um you also noted the book, the Brexit referendum polling, mm. and, and make the point that actually it wasn't that far off, uh, although it got the result wrong, the wrong way round. Mm. Um, do you think turnout made a difference there to pollsters' uh, inability to to get the actual result right, even though they were quite close?
1: Yeah, that does seem to have been a factor um, in that turnout was quite high and I guess, although the result of the referendum wasn't one, I would have, the one that I voted for. You know, in terms of recognizing that generally it's better for do- democracy when turnout is high rather than low. One could say it was high, and you know, in a in a surprising and welcome way. But the nature of that increase in turnout above what people might have expected does seem to be skewed particularly towards people who might. You might not have expected the vote coming out to vote leave and therefore had an impact on the result. But broadly speaking, the, you, if you look at the historical track record of polls and the maths of the sampling and margins of error and so on, the polls that were coming out you know, just before the referendum result itself should have been thought of as telling us that there was a five in six chance of Remain winning. Now, that might sound quite high. You might think, oh, actually, yeah, no, that's, yeah, of course, yeah, the polls are wrong, five in six chance, that's really high. Think of it the other way around, though. We should have thought of the polls as telling us there was a one in six chance of leave winning. And imagine you were playing Russian roulette, you know, with a revolver, one bullet, six chambers. In that context, one in six is quite a worryingly high <laughs> proportion. <laughs> so I think there's both the thing about, you know, the polls were not brilliant, but also, and this is often the case where the polls are seen to have gone wrong, a large part of the issue is how people interpreted the polls, not just that question about what were the actual numbers coming out of them. Because I think one in six is.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so turnouts one thing that pollsters have to cope with. And mm-hmm. and to bring you back to the to the original question, and sorry, I interrupted. But um mm-hmm. what about this this question of, of of representation? I mean, um, you know, how how have they managed to to do? Yeah. That? So.
1: Basically, what pollsters try to do on the representation front is ask a series of questions of the people who are willing to take part in their polls, things like how old they are, they look at where in the country they live, and so on, and then compare that with third-party sources of information like the census and use that to weight their figures. So if you've ended up with not enough young men, but you know from the census what proportion of young men you should have, you can weight your figures to, to, to adjust for that. The difficulty with that sometimes is that that other information is not always completely up to date. This was one of the problems for pollsters in Britain in 1992 when the polls got it famously and really badly wrong that they were using quite dated census information. That was one of the causes of that polling miss. But the other problem is, and we've seen this particularly in recent elections in both the UK and the US, is that some of the ways in which their samples are unrepresentative are really hard to measure and to adjust for so it's quite common that pollsters now get samples which are made up to, of people who are on average much more interested in politics than should be the case yeah that people who are particularly keen on following politics are more willing to have us answer questions from a stranger about their views on mm-hmm. politics but measuring level of political interest or enthusiasm and then knowing what the real figure is in the wider population given you can't just do a poll to ask the wider population because you'll have that problem again. That's a quite a, quite a conundrum. Um, and there have been, you know, some measures that in the past have not really mattered for waiting, such as level of education, which the different uh, polarisation of politics in the US and indeed in the UK in the last few years have meant are more important. But at heart, that level of, are you just polling people who follow politics more closely than average? That's I would wager is likely to continue to be quite a challenge for pollsters and when there is another polling miss of some sort at some point because there's bound to be I'd I'd be pretty confident that would be one of the factors mm. again that a polling post-mortem will have to really dig into
0: mm. and of course one of the problems for pollsters in the UK and it's a, a problem obviously for Um, Pollsters in other first-past-the-post systems is that um, it's one thing to predict vote share; you can get that right Mm. sometimes, but of course, um, extrapolating from that to seat share in the parliament can be um, quite tricky. Now, recently, one thing that pollsters have done to uh, try and get over that particular problem is to develop something called MRP, Mm. um, and people might have heard of that. I wonder if you could just (laughs) very, very. Uh, briefly, if you like, and and simply, and and I think the book is really good at doing this, just explain what MRP is and and why it is purported to be, anyway, the solution to that particular problem.
1: Oh, that's quite the challenge. And indeed, that's one of, I guess, one of the other thoughts I had at the back of my mind when writing the book is, if you want a nice, good, non-technical explanation of what MRP is, you'll have to work really hard uh, to find it. Although, hopefully, Hopefully, you will now feel that you've got that in my book if you read it. Um, But the heart of MRP is to say that if you want to know what the levels of voting support are in each parliamentary constituency, say, around the UK, you could do a a different constituency poll in each of them, and that is a mammoth, mammoth enterprise. You'd need to poll hundreds of thousands of people. If you do a national poll, a sort of one or 2,000 sample poll, You get the overall average figures, but you don't know within that how much those figures vary between different types of seats. And so even if you think about a a Great Britain-wide poll at the moment, if you were to do that, it wouldn't really tell you about how Labour and the Tories are doing relative to each other in Scotland, because the proportion of your sample that's from Scotland is just too small to do that. So what MRP does is it takes much larger samples, but... The crucial sort of insight and cleverness of MRP is what it does is is it, for any particular constituency, you look at who are the different people in the electorate there, you know, and there are you know, a whole load of middle aged white men who work in... At the university and there's a batch of young women who work in say the hospitality sector and there's some old there's an older asian retired population so, so you look at all of the mix of different people and use a much bigger national sample to work out for each of those people for each of their individual characteristics their age the sort of place they live whether they're in work or not their gender and so on you model each of those different elements separately and then add them together to be able to get a good sense of who that person is likely to vote for and then you can aggregate that up across the constituencies and therefore rather than having to poll enough people in um, say a seat in northeast england that has a big telephone call center in it you know rather than having to poll enough people nationally to be able to have enough people in your sample to know what the workforce in that telephone call center is thinking instead you're making use of the people who work in telephone call centres in all sorts of different places around the country and then you're looking at your polling results for men in all sorts of different places and women in all sorts of different places and then you're looking at your polling results for places in the northeast and then you can say ah well okay for this woman working that telephone call centre in the northeast you smush together those three different variables and of course many more in practice to come up with your answer so I hope that's given you a Hmm. reasonably clear idea of what MRP is. And
0: is it the magic bullet that some people hope it will be?
1: Uh, No, in a (laughs) word. It is potentially really useful, especially for understanding after an election why the result was what it was. But in advance of an election, MRP has had it a little bit lucky. in A couple of general elections ago, there was an MRP uh, survey or series of surveys done by YouGov, which the Times newspaper splashed on its front page, the first of them, and it was a shock figure showing the Tories were going to do much worse in the election than everyone else expected and other polls were pointing to and so on. And that was the 2017 election where indeed the Tories did end up massively underperforming. And so the the apparent debut of MRP was, wow, this is this new, different thing that got it right, except there was another MRP survey, uh, another set of MRP research done in that election by Lord Ashcroft. And it didn't get anything like the same publicity and it was way off. It predicted a comfortable Tory majority. So MRP as a methodology got it really lucky in 2017 that there was a a hit and a miss. And the the miss was one done in obscurity and the hit was done on the front page of a newspaper. And so that's a warning, I think, not to over infuse around it as a methodology. It's also the case that because MRP does have some real power and has a bit of cachet about it because of that lucky break in 2017, that a lot of polling firms now are touting MRP as a service they Mm. offer. And because of the economics of polling with quite small sample sizes compared Mm. to the original sort of much larger 50,000 type purity of, of, of original MRP polling. So that's that's a reason, a little bit of a reason for doubt. The uh, Another reason for doubt about when you see MRP figures is that the modelling is very hard to do. And it's really hard to tell from the outside whether an MRP model is done well or not. And in a, it's only really when you've got reality to check it against that you've got um, mm-hmm. a, a judge there. And then finally, though, I think the big plus point in MRP's favour is if you've got an election result, and you therefore can tell whether an MRP survey was right or not, and if it was right, then it gives you a level of detail about who voted which way and why that adds hugely to the level of understanding. So I think um, it's likely to be a methodology that ends up being really useful for people like you, Tim, (laughs) in terms of writing books or articles after the event. I think definitely it I can see it having a, a major part in the future, but as a magical solution to banish polling er- errors ahead of the election, it's useful to have another tool absolutely to compare with, but it's not its not the, the be-all and the end-all of polling problems.
0: One thing that people might ask um, if they live in a first-past-the-post system is, well, why don't we just poll marginals then? And this is something you go into the book. I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I Perhaps well, surprisingly, and counterintuitively certainly polling in marginals has got a pretty inaccurate record in Britain it's not particularly great and there's a there's a set of reasons for this one is how do you define marginals what really is a marginal seat because after all if you just look at the results from last time that might miss factors like is an incumbent MP standing down or not has there been a particular scandal has there been a big local factory closure you know there's all sorts of things that may make a seat look more or less safe than simply the result from last time so defining who the marginals are is quite hard and therefore also then quite often knowing exactly what to weight the figures to can be tricky as well because some 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 measures like census measures or election results you definitely have on constituency level but there may be other things which are not so amenable to uh, being able to measure correctly and therefore know what what to weight against and but also fundamentally the the thing with marginal polls is what you're saying you know, is, is, well, let's just poll marginals because marginals are going to somehow be different from the national average. And if you poll marginals and you get some results that are different, different from what you know, the national polls are telling you, what you really want to do to properly check that you've got the right, right results is then also poll some really safe seats and see the comparison. Ah, is this okay? This is what's in different in marginals. and what's different in safe seats. Therefore, this adds up to a picture that's consistent with the overall national picture. But of course, most polling is paid for by the media and budgets never stretch to doing that sensible safety check. And therefore, you've also got this problem that if marginal marginal polls are... Slightly unclear who you should really be polling can be a bit harder to do. If the results are different, you've not really got anything, any way of checking whether they're different because you've got an insight or whether they're different because you've done something wrong. And it's also the case that marginals tend not to behave that differently from the overall national picture. There definitely are some variations, but if you use uniform national swing on voting figures to project seat numbers at elections, you get roughly the right story. Um, you don't get the perfect story and the classic case for you know, people in my party and the Liberal Democrats of where Uniform National Swing got it really wrong was 97 election, Lib Dem vote shell, but the Lib Dem number of seats more than doubled. You know, UNS would have got that completely wrong. Mm-hmm. But UNS is not that, that off. And so marginals are this sort of not particularly useful tool when you've got something where you have to be really refined and specific to to actually be able to add something useful to what the national polls mm. are telling you. And so I, in the end, my conclusion at all of that is, I think I'll probably pay less attention to marginal polls in the future than I have have in the past, because they're, they're, it, it's different, you know, perhaps in, in, in places like the U S with, with their state-based, you know, presidential college, um, mm. electoral college, sorry, for the, for the president. And, uh, you yeah, the sort of safe states in that sense are massively, massively safe and, but also demographically massively, massively different often from the swing states in a way that in, again, in the UK, actually, whether a seat's marginal or not, isn't so much down to demography. So one, re, you know, one thing at the moment about whether a seat you might think a seat is marginal or not is, is it a Lib Dem Tory marginal or not? And a big chunk of that is how is down to how strong are the Lib Dems in that seat. And a big chunk of that is down to the slight quirks of local personalities of have there been three really good local campaigners from the Lib Dems living there for the last five years or not. Mm. And so it's not broader pictures of demography, <laughs> to tell you, which you know, the, the, the give you big differences between safe and, and marginal seats. A lot, a, a lot more of it is down to individual quirks like that, all of which adds up to a background against which marginal seat polling, in the UK at least, is not that useful.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of what your book does is is go into, you know, the, the the weeds of polling in a very interesting way, I have to say, in a very approachable way. Um, but you end up with 10 golden rules yeah. for those who um, pay attention to polls. Now, I'm going to play a, a mean trick on you and, and ask you to pick what would be your top three from those 10 golden rules, or at least if you prefer three that you feel we haven't already touched on.
1: So I think... Um, now I'm I'm beginning to wonder if I've ordered them in the book correctly, because the first one I'm going to pick is number seven, which (laughs) suggests that maybe if everyone goes out to buy the book and I get to do a paperback edition, maybe I should reorder them. (laughs) But but number seven, the more attention grabbing an individual poll is, the more likely it is to be wrong. Instead, treat polls like a set of ranging shots. You need multiple polls to scope out the truth. Mm. Um, And this is the cancer almost at the heart of modern political polling, that most of it in the UK is funded by the media. And therefore, if you have a figure that's set set figures in a poll that's really different from the past and what everyone else is saying, the media are going to splash that as a huge major story. And yet the very fact that it's a massive outlier should give you reasons for scepticism about is that really going to be right or not. And there's this dilemma at the heart of polling that all pollsters know. And if you talk to them, like on a podcast like this, you'll have them say about, well, don't pay too much attention to any one poll until they have their own new poll out funded by a media outlet. And then it's all about, oh, look at this exciting new poll that we've got coming out at 8 p.m. this evening. Um. So, sorry, in saying 8pm this evening, very astute listeners will have realised I was making reference to one particular (laughs) polling firm. I should, in fairness, add that that habit applies to pollsters who have polls that come out at times other than 8 o'clock in the evening (laughs) as well. So that's number seven, that, you know, think of each individual poll as part of a set of ranging shots. Mm -hmm. I guess the second rule I would go for is do not idolise any one pollster brackets, except possibly Anne Seltzer. In the the outlier superstar pollster that was right when everyone else was wrong, a bit like you know that small print on financial investment uh, adverts, yeah the, the 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 record of the past isn't a sure guide to the future, yeah. And the the amazing outlier last time may not be right this time yeah. again. Yeah. I said brackets, except perhaps Anselser. And the third the third one I would pick is that the answer to most pretty much all of the problems with polls is not to ignore them, but to look at more of them. Mm. And so if you think about all of the different things we've talked about on this podcast, having multiple polls done in slightly different ways, with slightly different samples, with slightly different weighting, and so multiple polls help give you that set of ranging shots and think, ooh, okay, now I can begin to have some confidence around the truth. Mm. And you see this at the moment, you know at the time that we're recording this in, beginning of April 2022 in the UK, There's a reasonable range of different size Labour leads over the Tories from different pollsters. And that comes down in part to a methodology difference about how pollsters treat people who say they voted Tory in 2019 and now they're not sure. And depending on what you then do with that not sure answer, you therefore end up with different figures for the size of of Mm -hmm. Labour's lead. And the insight, the knowledge comes from therefore looking at multiple polls and seeing okay that's the basic story at the heart of these differences. You can then add in your own value judgment about whether you think such people are more or less likely to swing back to the Tories and therefore whether that Labour lead is more or less robust than the headline figures might imply. But it's only by looking at multiple polls that you can see that that's the common factor, the thing that varies across them and therefore is the thing that is worth thinking about in terms of wanting to guess, predict, bet on how politics is going to play out in the next yeah. couple of years.
0: I mean, I guess I'd add to that, and it's related to it, um, your point about following trends as well. Mm. Um, it, you know, it's very, very important that people don't pick up on, um, you know, a, a change in one poll or even a couple of polls. It's actually a good idea to to try and follow the, the trend over time and take some kind of rolling average uh, of the polls that seems very sensible advice um, to me but
1: yeah because the the change in say vote share support for different parties between any two comparable polls such as polls done in the same way by the same pollster is very very rarely large enough that you can say with confidence there's been a real change mm-hmm. and again it's one of the flaws of a lot of the media reporting the media reporting tends to rather over egg a plus two here or a minus one there being hugely significant when in fact there's just an awful lot of noise in the figures yeah um, and yeah. actually you know being within two or three points it's not bad really but it means you get a lot of noise because of the bouncing up and down because of slightly different samples that you've 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 had each time and so yeah. on and so but on the other hand support levels for political parties do change. So simply dismissing every change as being within the margin of error would lead you in sort of into a self-defeating view of the status quo of nothing could ever change. And therefore, you're absolutely right. Looking at those trends and those mm. averages over a longer period of time mm. is what's most useful.
0: I'm going to end with a, a very unfair question to someone who's written a, a book about um, polling and political polling. Uh, and that is, do you think sometimes we pay too much attention uh, to polling Do do politicians, for example, pay too much attention to to polling, and uh, shouldn't, as, as some people who criticise them, um, shouldn't they be, you know, more interested in in uh, principles, in policies, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera?
1: I will ask, as you've mentioned politicians in your question, I will give you a politician's answer and say yes and no. <laughs> so we definitely pay too much attention to political polling in the sense that the closer an election is the more everyone gets sucked into paying atten- lots of attention to polls and the latest poll and who's slightly ahead, because if it's feeling close, it feels like, Oh yeah, let's, let's, let's really look at the polls and see what's going on. But of course the closer an election is the more likely the polls are to have it wrong because the <laughs> polls end up being one or two points out, which might still be a very respectable result in many ways. If an election is really close, that means they've got the winner wrong. <laughs> and therefore we tend to pay most attention to polls on the occasions when it's hardest for them to tell us what we're what we're seeking to know on the other hand fundamentally politics and democracy is there to serve the public and knowing what the public thinks is a really good thing and polling is essentially a rolling set of inputs from the public expressing their views that politicians listen to. And that's a good thing, particularly because if you've been to Eton, if you're mates with a Russian oligarch, you don't get to be polled an extra time. Your, your results in the poll don't get to be weighted up. There is a real egalitarian factor at the heart of polling about, you know, privilege and connections and wealth not giving your answers extra weight in the way that they do in so many other aspects of politics and so in the end I view polling as rather like the jury system when it comes to the courts and the criminal law in that it's not perfect but it's an awful lot better than the alternatives and that egalitarianism at the heart the idea that 12 ordinary people are judging you on a jury The fact that pollsters have tried to get a representative sample of everyone, not just their mates that they were at university with and so on. That is a really good thing. And in that sense, let's let's pay lots more attention to it.
0: Okay. well, certainly anybody who uh, would like to pay more attention to it should uh, go off and read Mark's book. It's called Polling Unpacked. I'd like to thank Mark for taking the time out to come on the pod to talk about that book. I'd also like to thank our producer, Gary Schwartz, for doing all the techie bits. Um, today And finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we've plenty more of them here at the Myland Institute. We're also on all your favourite or least favourite social media channels. And check out our website, just put Myland Institute into Google. So until next time, goodbye.